Hi there, this is Kit Roundy, a USH med student. I have uh, three amazing students with me again, as is always the case. Let's start with some introductions. Uh, Christian, you are the bat, I'm sorry, you're the Robin of the show today. I think that was the reference we had in the past. You want to do an introduction? Yeah, I'm Christian Smith, third year medical student at Rocky Vista University. And what else? Hi. I think that's good. We'll have a deeper intro when you are when you show up next time. We'll have you tell us cool. a little bit more about you when we do a podcast about motivational interviewing and some of the key elements of motivational interviewing. And then uh, the about women of the show, I think I think that's the right name. Uh, let's go ahead and have some introductions. Lexi, do you want to start? Sure. I'm Lexi Moody, and I'm also a third-year medical student at Rocky Vista University. And do you want me to go into interest? Yeah. Where, okay. where are you headed? I am loving general surgery, so. Very, very cool. So a lot of general surgeons have some difficulty on this rotation. And it's not because they don't want to be great physicians. It's not because they're not interested in uh, the importance of psychiatry. I think it's because this rotation doesn't have as much structure as a surgery rotation. Does that sound about right? Yes. Has it driven you nuts trying to figure out where you're supposed to be next? <laughs> um, I think... I've been able to kind of figure out Dr. Thomas usually has places for us to go if we want to go there. Uh -huh. um, I think the sitting still part is hard for me. <laughs> you want to stand still? Yes. <laughs> so I, I have noticed a couple of times when we're doing the lectures that you just have to stand up. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know what? It's actually pretty cool in the military if you're having difficulty paying attention to something or, or staying engaged in something, you stand up and you go to the back of the room. And I actually think it's a marvelous strategy. So I've... Uh, I've uh, given it two thumbs up in Thank my you. brain and uh, appreciate it. So uh, I'm I'm going to hold off before I ask how you came up with this topic because I think both you and Melody will will have a little bit of a discussion about that. Melody, how about doing some introduction uh, on the Batwoman level? <laughs> Sounds good. Um, so my name is Melody Bedrosian. I am also a third year medical student from Rocky Vista, um, and I think my interest seems to be heading towards anesthesia. So. Uh, I'm pretty excited about you guys heading that direction, and and I, I will lead up to how we came to this topic with the comment that uh, for a long time I've wanted somebody to pick up the story of the development of antipsychotic medications. I think it's an incredible story. There are a lot of threads that come together, and you two picked that up, um, and I think it's a good fit. Tell me a little bit about what you found in this podcast that spoke to uh, either anesthesia or surgery as you went through this. And, and uh, let's start with Melody this time. Okay. Well, I like this topic because I thought anytime you dive into history, it's interesting to see how we got to where we are today, how things have changed. Um, and as far as how it relates to anesthesia, this was not what I was expecting when I first started, but the research showed me um, it's really interesting because a big part of psych is the medications and how that helps patients, but it's not the only part of the story. You also have to look at them as people and clinically how they do. And obviously I'm interested in medications going into anesthesia, so it was a good fit for me. One of the uh, anesthesia students that we've had in the past commented that anesthesia is a field of of uh, case reports in many ways. Mm -hmm. Obviously that's not entirely mm -hmm. true, but there are a lot of things that we learn from these strange things that happen during anesthesia, and I think this story might be one of those. And we'll get to that a little bit more, I think. And then, uh, Lexi, I think you have some role in, in this uh, as yes. well. Yeah, so it kind of worked out that Melody and I are on this rotation together and kind of going into fields that work hand in hand together. Um, I also think pharm pharmacology is super interesting, and it might not be directly related to um, a surgeon using it, but it is used for the surgeon's benefit, I'd say. Um, and some of the antipsychotics and how, well, how the discovery of them came to be, um, did surgeons did come into play with that and trying to use those. And it's kind of interesting how a lot of drugs are discovered for one reason, and then they turn out to be not really useful for that reason and useful for another reason and kind of seeing how those things play out is always interesting. In other words, uh, I think what you're saying is scoreboard surgeons developed or identified antipsychotic medications. Yes. <laughs> Thank goodness our field saved you again, right? <laughs> yes, thank okay, you. Okay, <laughs> there we go, there we go. Uh, let's go ahead and get started with some high yield information. Christian, I think you have some 
principles that show up in the shelf exam preparation materials that you've been looking through. Do you want to go uh, walk through those with us? Yeah, so I'm mostly talking about just first-gen antipsychotics, uh, also known as typical antipsychotics. Um, method of action of this is um, dopamine D2 antagonists. Um, we'll use them for, you know, the indications that have psychosis involved, like schizophrenia and schizoaffective and bipolar. Um, so, but one high-yield thing I found is uh, that Tourette syndrome is another possible use for it. So, so let's be very, very specific. There, there are a lot of FDA indications for a lot of these medications, some for nausea, some for psychosis. The FDA indications were somewhat different in the 1950s and 60s when these yeah. came out. And I don't know that, I, I think if you're looking at a test question and being asked about bipolar disorder, I would just throw out some strong hesitancy sure. that, that first-generation antipsychotic medications are going to be the answer. They generally don't have that FDA approval. Okay, yeah, thanks for pointing that out. But yeah, usually psychosis is, is where we're looking at it with. Um, okay, so... Most of the test questions you're going to see are related to side effects, um, and we tend to group the different uh, first-gen antipsychotics into low potency and high potency, and they have uh, they can have the same side effects, but they're classically given different ones. Um, so low potency, the two that you'll often see are. Uh, thioridazine and chlorpromazine. Um, and then on high potency, the two that you'll classically see are haloperidol and flufenazine. Um, so with regards to low potency, well, uh, you can get the extrapyramidal symptoms uh, and the neuroleptic malignant syndrome, and I'll talk about that more in a second, but the more common ones we'll see are what is commonly referred to as the HAM symptoms. Uh, and HAM is, stands for antihistaminic, anti-adrenergic, and anti-muscarinic or cholinergic symptoms. So uh, I'll just go through each of those really quick. Histaminic would be things like drowsiness especially. Um, possibly weight gain can be related to that as well. Uh, anti-adrenergic, you'll classically think, see things like orthostatic hypotension, um, and that's because those uh, alpha receptors are causing, are being antagonized, and so vasodilation. Uh, you can have sexual dysfunction kind of related to that vascularity there again. I think you can have both sexual dysfunction and priapism related to that alpha-1 activity. Does that sound right? That, yeah, I think you're okay. right on that. Yeah. Um, and then the anticholinergic is kind of that classic mnemonic, like... Uh, uh, dry as a bone, mad as a hatter, all those things. I don't Red even. as a beat. Right. I don't even remember all. We, of them, we I'll, I'll just put in a plug for a previous podcast. Yeah. Uh, the the uh, evils of anticholinergic medications. I think right. we mentioned those before. We, they talked about it there. I heard. Yeah. That, so. so high potency, I think, is where you're headed next. Then. Right. Yeah. And then, uh, even though you're not going to talk about these right now, they'll come up more later. We we usually think about three groupings of medications: the low potency, the mid potency, and the high potency. But I think the test questions tend to focus on the low-potency medications and the high-potency medications yeah. because they're a little bit easier to test on in some ways. And we're going to talk about that in a few minutes, I think, <laughs> too. So high-potency. All right. So I'll talk uh, in a little more detail about neuroleptic malignant syndrome and then the extrapyramidal symptoms. So um, neuroleptic malignant syndrome is classically going to present with Several different things, fever, altered mental status, rigidity, it's often described as lead pipe rigidity, uh, autonomic instability, um, that relates to tachycardia, um, labile blood pressure, and diaphoresis. And then um, you, another is that you can sometimes have elevated creatinine kinase. So I found a mnemonic to help remember that the mnemonic is faltered uh, where F is fever, A is autonomic instability, L is leukocytosis, that's another thing you might see, T is tremor, E is elevated creatinine kinase, R is rigidity, and E is excessive sweating, so that's the diaphoresis, and D is delirium. And especially on the test, you're going to see fever, most likely, 
and the rigidity. Those are the two really common ones. And then like tachycardia is often there too. I think so, confusion is usually mentioned in the test yeah, questions too. Yeah. Okay. So it's important to know treatment. You're going to stop the antipsychotic uh, if you can. It's not always possible. But, well, in this case, you, you would, right? You pretty much have to. You have to, basically, right. Yeah. Um, dantrolene is often uh, the answer if they're looking for a medication. Uh, but you can also give benzodiazepines or bromocryptine and then supportive care. Supportive care. I was going to say that's usually the big one, making sure hydration, hydration, especially if you have that CK breakdown. Yeah. Very good. Um, a couple other questions I, I have seen pop up, usually with thyridazine, there's something about the eyes. Does that sound familiar? Melodies, jump in. You know this one. <laughs> I think it was the um, deposits, right, in the eyes, yeah. the retinal deposits. Retinal pigmentation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, let's see, Thorazine. Sometimes you'll hear something called the Thorazine shuffle. I'm not sure if you come across that in test questions. Mm -hmm. And I think that's uh, related to Parkinsonism, Parkinsonism with all of the medications. So you saw, saw that uh, more often um, at higher doses of those uh, mid and high potency medications, although you'd see it with the low potency medications as well. Anything else that we need to know that's high yield on that uh, shelf exam? Yeah, so can we talk about those extra pyramidal things as yes, well? Yes, let's uh, let's do a quick jump in on those. Okay, so the four that you'll classically see are dystonia, akathisia, Parkinsonism, and tardive dyskinesia. Um, these are thought to be caused by blockade of the dopamine pathways. I saw a question about that, so know that. Uh, and I'll just briefly talk about what each of these means. So dystonia is, I think of it as contraction. It's often of the neck, so the protocolis, mm -hmm. but it can be other things. There are some emergency. Diaphragm, if that's involved, can be laryngospasm. And how do you treat that emergently? Uh, so uh, diphenhydramine is the thing that Dr. Randy likes to harp on, and I actually found a question about that too. So, so it does show up on your shelf exam. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not just important for saving patients' lives. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and we actually use that because of the anticholinergic effect usually. So you can also use benzodiazepine. Um, and then for all of these, if it's appropriate, lowering the dose might help. But it's not yeah. always. Uh, it's not always possible. Yeah. Some, it's very difficult. I would also add that with the dystonia, sometimes you get a chronic dystonia, sometimes called a tardive dystonia, which is late and, and prolonged onset in that case. And uh, Botox might be helpful for that. Yeah. So acute dystonias are treated somewhat differently than uh, longer-lasting dystonias. Mm -hmm. uh, I think akathisia is probably next on your list. Yeah, so I think of this as restlessness. They want to get up and move. They're fidgeting. They're anxious. Um, and the treatments here are beta blockers and benzodiazepines. Does that sound right to you? Yes, and avoid anticholinergics. If you remember a previous podcast or have looked at that, you'd see that. And benzodiazepines are very difficult because they end up being misused quite often. So it, it really does come down to beta blockers. Beta primarily. blockers. Yeah, okay. primarily. Okay, Parkinsonism, that's just kind of the classic symptoms of Parkinson's disease. So that's things like that decreased affect, mask-like face, the cogwheel rigidity, pill-rolling tremor. Um, fascination. That's my favorite symptom. Fascination. <laughs> fascination, I think, where you stand up and there's sort of that little stumbling um, walk into the walk gait. Okay. Um, and then treatment on that one is benzodiazepine. Uh, yeah, I think actually, and, and on the shelf exam, look for an answer to change medications as well. Um, okay. Cogentin has a lot of drawbacks, right? Which is benztropine. Okay. Um, but uh, both of those are options. It, it's a pretty tough symptom to manage. Right. And then the last one I think is tardive dyskinesia. Mm -hmm. And this one's a little different in that it's, it usually doesn't show up as acutely. It's more after months or even years of being yeah. on these medications. So tardive meaning late appearing, I think, and then dyskinesia, abnormal movement. Mm-hmm. And so I think of this as just abnormal movements. Uh, it can be a lot of different places, but it's commonly on the mouth or tongue. Um, and yes. then it can also be upper extremities. Trunk. You'll also see some people that have it in the feet and the legs, and you'll see their legs just kind of kick out. Mm -hmm. uh, treatment for that? Uh, that one usually is just continuation of the current treatment and finding something better. It used to be. That's changed. Mm. Uh, the benazines. 
have now become the treatment of choice. So when you have a medication that is necessary and difficult to change, it's a lot easier to add to do tetrabenazine or oh, valbenazine right. now. We did talk about that at one point. We, we, we've talked about it, but I don't think that's showing up on the shelf exam yet. Yeah. We, we haven't seen it will eventually. Very good. So let's talk about the discovery of these molecules. I think you may have some other places where you're going to jump in and, and have some comments. I want to start with um, really cool blue colors. <laughs> Who's got this? Um, I guess I could jump in. So that is a great leadway into um, how antipsychotics were first discovered. And specifically, methylene blue is, I think, where you were heading with that. Yeah. And so... Um, Methylene blue was initially used in the dye industry, um, and it's interesting how that ended up helping lead to the discovery of the first antipsychotic, which was chlorpromazine. Yeah. I understand that methylene blue became so uh, prominent. Um, I, th I think it was, uh, I assume it's a six-carbon ring that has some something around it, right? I don't know if, I ever, if we ever looked this up. Um, but it's so. an organic, right? This yes. is, this is mm -hmm. one of the... Uh, foundational events in organic chemistry mm -hmm. and we now have this blue dye that some guy accidentally made right he was trying mm -hmm. to do something with tar maybe I think so it was I know it said it was an accident I don't know what it was specifically tar sounds vaguely familiar but um, it was an accidental discovery great discovery for the dye industry and then shockingly enough also for the antipsychotic industry <laughs> and to make methylene blue um, they needed precursor molecules I think Yes. What was that precursor molecule? Do you remember? Do you have that anywhere? I don't know that I do. Or was it methylene blue then could become something else? It was It was a little bit murky to me. I think it starts with methylene blue mm -hmm. and then it becomes... Um, a lot of things. Well, yeah. Phenothiazine was the next step, was I the think. next step, yeah. And I think a lot of the antipsychotic medications are sometimes called phenothiazines. Mm -hmm. That are the low potencies, right? The high mm -hmm. potencies are a different, the butyrophenones are the high potencies. We'll get to that in a minute. So we, we now have uh, methylene blue. We need to find precursor molecules for this, and the best place comes from Peru. Yes, the, I'm going to say this wrong, but Cincona plant? Uh, that is a Rubaceae family. <laughs> which is also part of the coffee, coffee family. family. Yeah. Yes. And if I understand correctly, and I don't know if you guys saw this uh, the story that I, I once read, I, I think I didn't get that article for you guys. There's this really great story of Peru trying to hold on to this plant and keep it and uh, keep it within the country so that they could have that valuable precursor molecule that they could sell to the world. And it got stolen away essentially and planted in Java. And, and then became much more widely available. So, so part of getting to our antipsychotic medications, there's a guy that accidentally discovers methylene blue. There are uh, precursor molecules found in this Cincona plant, and now it's stolen and taken away to Java where it can be uh, harvested uh, more broadly. And then the world takes off on these molecules, right? Dyes mm -hmm. become just the foundation of this, and people start trying to solve uh, malaria, Right, mm -hmm. uh, I think soldiers had come home from World War One, two, two. Mm -hmm. World War Two, and uh, they were trying to solve malaria. So a lot of people were looking at this molecule as potentially a solution. Never panned out. No. And uh, there's some guy who grew up in the British Navy or French Navy, French, French Navy, Navy. Yes. French Navy. Yeah, tell us about that guy. Okay, so that guy is actually Dr. Henry Leverett, I think is how you would pronounce it, hopefully. Um, and so, as you mentioned, he, was, he grew up in the French Navy. He was an Army surgeon, or I guess Navy surgeon. Um, and so it was interesting because his goal, kind of the theme so far that we've seen, was not to come up with an antipsychotic, but rather because he was dealing with these trauma patients, he wanted something that could help during surgery, help keep patients calmer, and um, his big thing was hemodynamic shock, and he thought that if he found something that could re reduce the anesthesia required, then that could help operative conditions and post-operative conditions. And so that's how, um, that's how he ended up discovering chlorpromazine. And he described it as a chemical lobotomy, which I think is a really interesting way of putting it. But essentially, it had a tendency to put patients or people to sleep, and it made them disinterested in their surroundings. And it was useful because it seemed to calm patients down during and after surgery. Now, Labrie has uh, a brother-in-law. <laughs> yes. 
And uh, so actually I actually want to say just a couple more things about Larry. It, it seems like his dad was also a physician, and he grew up on ships. Yes. Is that the impression you I, had reading the story? And, and I think he was in the Navy around India. And mm-hmm. it, that was my impression, although I'm not sure about that. I'm not as, as certain about that. And then when he's trying to find these solutions, he's not in France at that time, I don't think. I think he's on some island somewhere. He was at the, so it's the surgical unit at, hopefully I pronounced this correctly, Bizert Naval Hospital at Sidi Abdallah. I don't know. S-I-D-I-A-B-D-A-L-L-A-H. Yeah, so, so he figures this out. And he says, wait a minute, there might be something here that can be used in psychiatry. Now, how, how that happens, I have no idea. But he has a brother-in-law, and he calls his brother-in-law, and he says something along the lines of, dude, you got to try this stuff. <laughs> Pretty much. Tell me how that happens. What, what happens next? Uh, well, yeah, so they kind of take it into the field of psychiatry now and try to use it on their patients to use that um, anti-anxiety calming effect and they do find that it starts to work dramatically yes so so i think there's a little more to the story here that that i I i've been told that if you can't make a story better by retelling it don't (laughs) retell the story but there there's a lot of information about how the surgeons were using this i I think they had some success i think labrie had some success Mm -hmm in improving surgical outcomes and he said okay here's how you do it you've got to get the patient cold then you give them yeah they used ice baths right well yeah so they were using ice ice baths along with the clo- chlor i know i can't even chlorpromazine. thank you <laughs> <laughs> um, um, and mostly that piece was for the surgical shock that they were trying to prevent but then the nurses were having a hard time filling the ice baths and making that happen so they kind of just cut it out and then they realize like oh this is still working so they just cut out the ice baths altogether and have the same effect yeah I've, I've read a couple of different versions of that story and and i don't know maybe i'm making up a story but in my mind <laughs> the doc showed up and said okay here's what you got to do you got to give them the medication but you got to make sure you have the ice bath you get, get the patient good and cold make them sit in the bath for 30 minutes it's got to be exactly 30 minutes mm-hmm. and the nurses say something along the lines of yeah sure absolutely <laughs> and then the doctors take off the nurses do look at it and go are you doing that I'm, I'm, I'm not doing that are you doing that i'm not doing that let's give the person the medication help them instead of torturing them yeah right and so uh, ice, ice baths don't last the medication does yes now how we read a little bit about how quickly this medication was adopted worldwide. Yes. I think that's one of the uh, more fascinating parts because normally there's a little bit of hesitancy or you want to kind of look into it more. But I think within a year or so, this medication kind of spread and not just locally, but as you just said, worldwide. And people started noticing really great results with it. And it kind of almost triggered um, the process of deinstitutionalization a little bit, which I think you discussed on a previous podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just really interesting how quick and how worldwide and spread that was. It, it's remarkable. Um, th- one of the articles that you guys came up with said that the days in seclusion in one of the New York institutions dropped by 90 to 95 percent. Which is astounding. Astounding. It's an astounding number. Now, we're still shooting for no seclusions, mm-hmm. no restraints. We would really like to be there. That's been hard for us. But but that number in itself is just remarkable. 15,000 bed hospitals drop their census dramatically. Mm-hmm. Some hospitals shudder because of the change. And then we move into the county mental health system because of the continued challenges. We're going to talk right. about those challenges mm-hmm. in just a moment. Before we do, though, I want to talk about a couple of threads that are woven in with this story. There's a guy named Paul Jansen. His dad uh, started a pharmaceutical company largely focused on providing opiates. Yes. Right, pain relief. <laughs> and and Paul said something along the lines of, gee, I don't think there's going to be a forever market for opiates. <laughs> Sackler family to the contrary, I suppose, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so he starts trying to figure out what can I do differently. Now, there are a couple of different stories I've read about this, and one of them involves cyclists becoming psychotic Mm -hmm. uh, using stimulants Mm -hmm. and that this was part of the story. I can't find that anywhere else. I can't. (laughs) That's that's a story that I can't seem to verify, and and so I don't think is accurate. Mm -hmm. A more accurate story seems to be that uh, he got involved with butyrophenones 
Do you have that story? Yeah, that's the story that I found. Hopefully it is the accurate one. <laughs> um, I can't comment on that. But the story was that um, he was trying to develop a more powerful analgesic. So he, he started experimenting with these butyrophenones. Butyrophenones. Um, wow, pronunciation's hard. Yes. Um, and what he found with this molecule, which I don't think we've mentioned it yet, but is haloperidol, this was synthesized in about 1958 by him, and he found that when he tested it on mice, they went into what he described a cataleptic um, state. And this was very similar, he said, to the chlorpromazine effect of having that chemical lobotomy. And so this kind of took off. He noticed outstanding results in agitated patients, but one thing that was commented was that it did have a lot of hallucinolytic effects that surpassed the others as well. And, and probably because it's more tightly bound, right? Mm -hmm. um, and we're going to get to that in just a few minutes as well. Now, one other thing I want to add in on this, when I read one of the stories about Paul Janssen, um, the, the, first of all, the rat story is very interesting mm -hmm. in that, if I understand correctly, that became the model for identifying medications that might treat schizophrenia. We gave mm -hmm. uh, these molecules to rats, and if they became cataplectic mm -hmm. or cataleptic, which I one? I think cataleptic. Cataleptic. Cataplexy is the weakness you feel if you feel strong mm -hmm. emotions and have yes. narcolepsy. A narcolepsy. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so cataleptic, and, and this was the model for identifying antipsychotic medications for a long time. Mm -hmm. The second thing that's very interesting, and we've talked about um, how people found out if medications worked, right? We talked in the Lithium yeah. podcast, which you may or may not have listened to, about the scientists who were shaving off um, chunks of lithium and putting them in capsules and trying to make randomized controlled trials out of that. Uh, very fascinating stuff. And in this case, Paul Janssen was experimenting on his neighbors. I don't know if you guys saw that article. There was so much to read on this that it was hard yeah, to get everything. Yeah, you mentioned it. I tried to look that up, but I couldn't find, find it. it. Not that that says much, but... Well, I think a lot of these histories that I found have been found over years of bumping mm -hmm. into it. And then I think I had it referenced on that one sheet mm -hmm. that I'd put okay. together, but I didn't have it in the file of, of papers that we review. Uh, so so Janssen is making now antipsychotic medications. Haldol, I think, is his first medication. Mm -hmm. We have this idea of chemical lobotomy. And a couple of new terms come into our uh, medical language. Uh, tranquilizers. Did you guys see anything about minor and major tranquilizers? Yes, I did. So the article that I was kind of looking at where this popped up, and I think this is what you're referring to, is that when they first looked at chlorpromazine, um, they described it as kind of a tranquilization effect and that it decreased anxiety, it decreased aggression. Um, and it led to this concept of major versus minor tranquil tranquilizers. And I think this was in comparison to a meprobamate. Yeah, which is a different drug that was introduced just a couple years later. Um, similar effects. And basically what they were going with that term of like major or minor is that Minor tranquilizers, so meprobamate and barbiturates, are not adequate to treat schizophrenia or these agitated symptoms, and you need a more major effect to calm down your patients. So the barbiturates have been replaced by benzodiazepines, right? Mm, yes. And if we think about minor tranquilizers and major, major tranquilizers as a historical artifact of language, mm -hmm. it does give us some sense of the difference between the molecules, but I would say that sometimes you'll hear... Uh, benzodiazepines referred to as minor tranquilizers or tranquilizers. Um, I want to also bring one more thread forward. So we've talked about uh, in previous podcasts about some of the interesting things that were discovered serendipitously. We talked about all these accidental threads that had to come together for there to be recognition of a molecule that nobody was looking for, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, we've talked in another podcast, and I think we've all visited about um, monoamine oxidase inhibitors and how that came to us. Mm -hmm. Th that was also mentioned. But one of the other things that's really interesting and happening at, the, at this time that I think is meaningful for the discussion is there's an understanding of anticholinergic pharmacology and manipulation of that pharmacology that has emerged over the previous, oh, I think, 20 years or so. And now people are starting to think maybe these other transmitters we can affect those as well. And so there's this sort of like um, 
heyday, a pharmacological explosion. And we see a lot of other molecules that are being played with. For example, uh, chlorpromazine, they're modifying that to see if they can get a better chlorpromazine, right? Mm -hmm. And suddenly they've discovered imipramine which has absolutely no effect on psychosis, yep. and yet becomes one of the mainstays of our uh, serotonergic model of depression, right? right? For a number of years. And so I think this, this is very fascinating, this just explosion. Mm -hmm. right? And in fact, really, we haven't had any medications that have substantially changed this model since they started showing up, uh, what, 50, 60, 70 years ago. Right? Mm -hmm. right. So we're going to talk, I, I want to now take this podcast a little bit different direction. Initially, I think we were planning on uh, stopping at this point, right, and kind of saying, isn't that pretty cool that right. surgeons <laughs> develop uh, treatments for schizophrenia? Yeah. But then it, it kind of dawned on me that I, that I thought there was more to the story. Mm -hmm. And part of that happened because of some of the articles that the two of you put in the folder that spoke to the inadequacies of the medications. Yes. Um, now, it's hard to kind of wrap my head around this, right? But this, the state hospitals had thousands and thousands of people in them. Mm -hmm. And in large part, they were emptied because people could have re relief on some level from the psychosis, right? Mm -hmm. and, and yet a lot of articles that we read almost forget what the alternative was before that, right? Right. Um, there, there's clearly some role, and yet they are clearly inadequate. Um, mm -hmm. I think, Christian, you were talking about a number of the reasons why they're inadequate, right? Tardive dyskinesia, um, akathisia. But, and those are symptoms that we have some treatments for, but there also seems to be uh, some changes in dopamine that make it a little bit harder to have motivation, to feel joy and pleasure, right? These, these medications are often associated with weight gain. Um, and, and so we have these medications, they help with voices, but that really hasn't helped improve insight, it hasn't improved negative symptoms, it hasn't always meant that people are happier and living the life they really want to live. And so with those inadequacies, we see some this, this goal of development continue. Yes. Um, I think the next big uh, player in this discussion is probably clozaril or clozapine. Tell me a little bit about clozapine. Yeah, so clozapine was interesting when you were talking about the mice studies before. Um, oh, wait, no. I'm I think gonna, you're right. Okay. So this medication didn't cause catalepsy in the mice. Yes. Okay, I, was, I wasn't sure if it was that or aripropozole until I started talking. So I think it was this one, <laughs> but was, I don't remember yeah. for sure. Yeah. No, it was. It was. Mm -hmm. yeah, Melody's so it got this. Of, thank you, Melody. <laughs> no it's hard to keep you. track of everything. Right, for sure. Um, but yeah, so clozapine wasn't having the same effect on the mice as these other antipsychotics, which was really interesting. And so, I mean, there's, I don't know if you want to add to that before I move on. No, that sounds about right. I think what was really exciting about clozapine was that it wasn't having any side effects that they noted. It didn't have that... Um, cataleptic effect that they said but it did seem to calm patients down when it went to like human patients and it was seen to be effective but the beginning mentality from a lot of psychiatrists was if it's not causing side effects then it's not a real drug it's not a real antipsychotic um so there was a lot of hesitancy in the beginning and it, it was just interesting to me to think like oh it's not causing side effects you think you'd be happy but that was a hesitancy for them um but then there were some side effects that yeah. came about. I don't know if you want to... Yeah, yeah. One of the major side effects we look for now with um, clozaril is agranulocytosis. And um, something that we have to keep up with with those patients are doing consistent um, CBCs with diff and checking on those neutrophil levels to make sure that this isn't going to kill them. Like, it's a very dangerous side effect. So it has the benefit of not having a lot of the other side effects we see, but it does have some serious side effects that we have to keep an eye on. Yeah. I was, I was uh, fairly impressed with the way the, the article that we mm -hmm. read together talked about this. Um, I had never quite heard this before, but what they said was, um, and I'm not sure on the timeline, but what they said was the, the scientists, the, the physicians that were working with this medication and with the patient said, there's something different about this, right? Yes. This is different. Mm -hmm. We see this as being different than the other medications. And yet at the same time, a whole bunch of patients in Finland 
suddenly start getting neutropenia, agranulocytosis mm-hmm. even, not able to mount an immune response and are dying because it's not being monitored for, right? Mm-hmm. And so it gets pulled off the market for a while, and now we're in a race to try and figure out how to have second-generation antipsychotic medications. Does mm-hmm. that sound about right? Yes. Yeah. All right. Sounds about right. <laughs> okay, so we now have first and second-generation antipsychotic medications, and... Um, one of the authors really makes the case that we spend a lot more money on second-generation antipsychotics without getting more benefit. Mm-hmm. I think he makes the argument that we've raised up a group of physicians that don't know how to use all the tools in their armamentarium, mm-hmm. and that if they were used more effectively with lower doses, perhaps you would avoid the akathisia, perhaps you would avoid the dystonias. And there's even a study that comes out that's fairly important in the early 2000s. Uh, either of you want to pick up the Katie trial? So the Katie trial was very interesting, and it's referenced quite a bit in all of the articles that popped up. Um, I guess the summary of the Katie trial is it compared, I think, perfenazine specifically with four of the newer drugs on the market, so the second generations, and it found that as far as efficacy goes, they were pretty similar. And as far as those extrapyramidal side effects that Christian mentioned earlier that we're really hesitant with on our first generations, there actually wasn't an advantage from second generation to first generation. Um, And I think it might have been a different article that hypothesized why that is, or it might have been the same one. But they said that excluding clozapine from this discussion, it seems that the reason that there is a, I guess, patient-reported or physician-reported difference is just because second gens are used, these new drugs weren't used as much, so you weren't seeing side effects as much. But when you look at the big picture, they seem to be pretty comparable. It seemed to be that that was the outcome, and it was really interesting. One of the uh, other studies that was happening at the same time was called the Cutlass Study. And the author that we read said that that study was buried because it didn't fit conventional Mm -hmm. wisdom. And only when the Katie trial came out did everybody say, okay, now we can publish the Cutlass data because it also showed that the difference between first and second generation medications, depending on the way they're dosed, that difference isn't as profound. Now, I would also add one other comment, and that is that it seems like the comparator was a mid-potency antipsychotic medication, and those mid-potency antipsychotic medications may avoid the pitfalls of both the high and low-potency right. in a way that's fairly helpful or meaningful. So, so there, I think there's still a lot to try and understand about that trial, mm-hmm. but, but I think at least some authors make the case that these are valuable medications that may have been dosed too high in the past mm-hmm. and had these side effects. And rather than dose too high, we now have like 18 other medications we can try and see if we get a better response and a more tolerable dose. Mm-hmm. Yes. There's another thread that's happening about the same time, and I think this becomes somewhat important. There's something called C-raclopride, which is a carbon-labeled uh, molecule that's used in uh, determining dopamine 2 Mm-hmm. occupancy in the brain. Tell yes. me about, we'll just call it C. Okay. Tell me about C. So this was an article that you actually pointed us towards, so mm-hmm. I might, hopefully not, but I might not get all the facts correctly. Um, but essentially when I was reading it, it said that they use this molecule, I guess I'd call it C, C. They use C um, to try to monitor how dopamine was being affected in the brain. And so Obviously, that's really important to our discussion, and they were trying to measure how the concentration changed after you gave pharmacological um, interventions. And so originally there was just um, an article that showed that, oh, it is a pretty good indicator, and yeah, we could use it. Um, And then the second article, I think, used it to look at how dopamine was changing, and I think it was with, was that the one with Irv? It might have been with Irv I think I might have put two, and there was, I think, maybe one that I came across with... uh, Risperidone. I'm not sure if I dumped that in the folder or not. Um, But yeah, they start looking at these, how much of the dopamine 2 is bound in these Mm -hmm. critical areas. Sorry, I think one of the cool takeaways from that article was just using that occupancy to predict the therapeutic doses of aeropropozole. Um, And another thing that I thought was interesting was when they saw um, occupancy of even greater than 90% of the receptors, they still weren't seeing um, extrapyramidal symptoms Mm -hmm. in patients with aeropropozole because it's a partial antagonist. So so the way I understand this story, and it's it's taken me a while to wrap my head around it, um, 
it helps us with dose finding, right? But it also initially, I, I think, was used to help us understand where do we start getting efficacy from dopamine antagonists. Mm -hmm. And I think I remember it somewhere between 60 and 80%, yes. percent, something mm -hmm. along those lines. And where do we see onset of benefit, and then where do we start seeing the um, side effects mm -hmm. start really becoming problematic. And, and of course that varies from person to person, but this is one of our first forays into understanding the relationship between the dose of the medication and uh, what's happening in the brain. And obviously there are a number of things that are bypassed in this. It doesn't take into account uh, CYP450 uh, mm -hmm. enzyme activities and so mm -hmm. forth. Um, but at least we have now this start and this understanding Right. If you have a full dopamine 2 antagonist, you kind of need to shoot for this, this certain area. Right. And I think that leads us to um, a, couple of, uh, a couple of things that are now happening. I'm, I'm going to take a partial step back. One of the things that started happening, if I understand correctly, in about the 80s was um, in response to the challenge that our patients had after they released uh, through deinstitutionalization, right? Our, our patients had a tough time staying well. And one of the responses to that was to have long-acting injections. Mm -hmm. And I think the authors that we read pointed out that this was one of the, um, one of the game-changing aspects of mm -hmm. treatment. So it wasn't that we had new treatments at this point. It was that we had treatments that were durable and could be continued more easily, right? You don't have to go give somebody a pill every night. What you can do is mm -hmm. find somebody, work with them closely enough that they can have a medication in their body a month at a time or maybe every two weeks at a time. And this is one of the fundamental changes in our antipsychotic armamentarium. Shortly after uh, 2000 and I think uh, C became available in the 80s and it started being used uh, after that to kind of understand that, understanding that dosing relationship between antipsychotic medications and outcomes and side effects. But also at the same time, uh, some really bright people are starting to expand our ideas about the dopamine hypothesis, right? It's starting to change a little bit mm -hmm. and we're starting to see that um, feedback mechanisms might be important in in treatment of uh, schizophrenia, we're starting to recognize that our uh, dopamine 2 antagonists, or maybe we already knew this, I'm not sure I know a timeline on this, we're starting to see or, or wonder if there's a way to overcome the effects on negative symptoms that antipsychotic medications add. So if we talk about the dorsolateral prefrontal, uh, dorsolateral prefrontal pathway, if we talk about the mesocortical prefrontal pathway, um, and we're tamping those down with dopamine antagonists, we're inducing depression, we're creating a motivation and so forth, right? right. And so there, there are a lot of things that are looking at this. The first is that perhaps our second generation antipsychotics have a turn back on mechanism for mm -hmm. dopamine in those pathways. I think that's through 5-HT2. Yes. Uh, we didn't, I don't think we talked about that as much in the articles that we had. Maybe you ran across it. There but there's one. Yeah, there was one. It was just going through some of the genes and some of the um, intracellular processes that scientists are looking at now, kind of trying to move away from just these D2 antagonists and it mentioned a little bit that 5-HT or serotonin is something really important to consider because it clearly plays a role in this pathway and it might provide better results. But Some overcome. Yeah, yeah it's, it's one of those things that it's not clear we understand mm -hmm. it fully, but that seems to be a pretty good working hypothesis at the moment. And then there's also another group of people that say, well, wait a minute, what if we want to reduce dopamine in a couple of areas and increase dopamine in a couple of other areas? I mentioned the areas where we want it increased. And the areas we wouldn't want it increased are the mesocortical... Mesolimbic? Mesolimbic, thank yes. you. <laughs> Mesolimbic, and we don't really want it affected in the tuberoinfundibular mm -hmm. pathways. We really like to minimize the effect in the pyramidal system, right? <laughs> Anti-pyramidal yes. uh, side effects. So this is uh, the area where we think about Parkinsonism and the movement disorders. And uh, so they started considering... Oh, you're smiling. Go ahead. It's all yours. I'm actually stress-smiling. <laughs> stress-smiling. So partial antagonists, right? Because now you can, with a partial antagonist, you can block out too much mm -hmm. and add where there's too little. So I, I think of it as kind of like uh, uh, a different sort of thermostat. Instead of trying to change the thermostat by increasing or reducing the dose, we now essentially, I think, want to saturate the receptors and have a, a set point for those receptors. So we're now 
covering the receptors and it's always 72 degrees rather than, okay, we got a little too hot, we got to drop the temperature, oh wait, there's too many voices, we got to increase the, you know, the thermostat, however you want to speak about that. And so I think these <laughs> partial antagonists become a really elegant solution mm -hmm. as we start thinking about the different pathways that are involved. Yeah, aripiprazole is the partial antagonist that comes into play. And they do start looking at adding that to therapy. So going from a monotherapy, which is the gold standard treatment for schizophrenia, to this polypharmacy. Um, the egregious sin of polypharmacy? Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> so they try using um, specifically clozapine with aripiprazole. And you mentioned earlier that there was a big advertisement from the pharmaceutical company saying, hey, this is magic. If you add it, everything um, will be better. Yeah. But what they found is that wasn't actually the case. And when you do block some of those receptors with that partial agonist, it blocks it from clozapine being able to bind. So it actually made the patients um, have we had, less effect. Yeah, we had a lot of patients that came back to the hospital who were given aripiprazole. Um, in all fairness, I think there was an article that talked about the benefit. I think it was probably a small trial. Mm -hmm. and, and what we found was that clearly it hurts some people. And what the hard part about being at the state hospital is we only see where things go wrong, right? right we don't right. see where it goes right. So I th in all fairness to the people that did this, uh, while I remain somewhat cynical and think that it was an, an, an aripiprazole sales job, um, I, I do think there were probably some people that had benefit with that partial antagonism. Well, even in the, so the article, you're right, sorry, I kind of mixed up my stories with your part in the article part. Um, but the article did say that even though they did see some benefits with the multiple therapies used um, and like reducing the extrapyramidal symptoms was a big benefit, um, they didn't necessarily find evidence that using the combination therapy was better than using clozapine alone. Yeah. So they did mention that. I think it's been hard uh, to find medications that are better than clozapine. It, it's really hard to do studies to find how augmentation might work. Uh, there was a fascinating study that I read a number of years ago where, in my mind, a group of um, a group of uh, I don't think they were clinicians, I think they were studiers, what would you call those, researchers, <laughs> um, <laughs> were looking to, to try and figure out, um, to kind of prove good doctors use clozapine, bad doctors use uh, polypharmacy. And interestingly enough, they found that the docs that are more likely to use polypharmacy are, are also the docs that are more likely to uh, use clozapine. And so what they concluded is maybe the docs that are doing anything to try and get a patient well are the docs that will go beyond Clozapine, when even clozapine doesn't work. And, re and remember, our NNTs are not, I mean, it's not like you give clozapine and it works. What happens is about uh, half the patients that you give clozapine to get somewhat better uh, compared to placebo response. And, and of course, there's a placebo response, and I think some of the articles mentioned yes. that we don't understand how often people. Uh, don't recover from psychosis, but occasionally they do. But there was also a really great article that was referenced, so I bought this book. I, <laughs> I, there was a study that was done by the National Institute of Health, and what they did is compared patients who didn't get an antipsychotic in the first six months of treatment mm -hmm. to people that did, and what they found is that the people who didn't have a, a nearly immediate treatment really had much worse outcomes, right? They ended yes. up being hospitalized over and over and over. Mm -hmm. so, so it's really scary to try and say, well, you might recover, so let's just wait and watch, mm -hmm. when it seems like it's more likely that somebody, if you wait and watch, will have a much worse prognosis without having the medication. I don't know if you guys saw that. Yeah, I think the other trap sometimes we fall into is we think, oh, they recover, which sometimes they might without medication, but I think the other thing that same article said was that their relapse rate is so high and they're hospitalized several times, like five times more, I think, than yeah, patients who are more. treated. Mm -hmm. So I think it's not a end of the road once they recover, it's done, we did the job. There's the relapse to consider and this lifelong yeah. back and I'm hoping that we get uh, a better understanding of the mechanisms of psychosis so that it's yes. a, it is a possibility to pull people off the medications. But the way I'm reading the literature at the moment is what gets you well, keeps you well, and hang on to it until we have better data. Right. Yeah. I think there was one article that mentioned after a stable six months on a medication, um, I think it was the polypharmacy article actually, mm -hmm. um, there was some evidence that they could move to a monotherapy and still hold that maintenance or reduce the doses mm -hmm. of those yeah. 
polypharmacy um, drugs. But again, like that's needs to be looked into further because yeah. people aren't staying well if they're off their meds. And I yeah. and I think there was like a warning of I think it was specifically I, I can't remember which drug specifically, but they said don't drop the dose below. 200. Three milligrams. Or, yeah, yeah three I think milligrams. it was the Risperidone article. Um, and so if you drop, so it seems like it's almost like just get that right amount where it's not too high to cause problems, but if you get slightly low, then you could cause a relapse or psych- psychotic symptoms. And I, and I think this is uh, uh, Jim Davis, who I think is a phenomenal researcher. I think that was the article he wrote. He's written a number of articles with a guy named mm-hmm. Stefan Luke. These guys are, are uh, people that look at big data sets and not individual patients. So mm-hmm. the idea is, how does the big data set guide me, and what do I need to be aware of in my individual patient? And, and those are questions that are, are pretty tough to answer, I think, if you were to listen to our CYP450 enzyme mm-hmm. discussion. It would make some sort of sense that maybe a lot of people might be able to move to a different dose of medication, right. but maybe not everybody, depending on what enzymes they have and how they transport molecules back and forth, either in the liver or into the CSF. Mm-hmm. Interesting stuff, though. Yeah. Very interesting stuff. Uh, Sorry, I was going to say there was another article that I think you directed us towards that talked about the dopamine super sensitivity too, so that sometimes you could lower it, but then in some patients, just staying at or maintaining their current dose, you start having symptoms and you actually have to increase it. So it's it's just not cut and dry, unfortunately. I I have to admit, I read that and I thought, I'm not going to bring that up. I'm not sure I understand it. (laughs) Then I definitely didn't understand it, but I just thought that tidbit was interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, I think you you nailed it. I think that's kind of the way I understood it. But there are a lot of discussions about uh, sensitivity, receptor sensitivity they they happen in uh, with antidepressants as well as antipsychotic Mm -hmm. medications. And it's something that has seemed really murky to me still. Right, and I think they said that too, that we don't even technically know if it's super sensitivity or if it's a relapse and it's a separate condition, that there's just a lot to discover with that topic. It's a great topic, and, and I, I think it'll be part of what we understand in the future. Um, speaking of the future, I think we've kind of caught up to where things are now. There are um, first-generation antipsychotic medications with mid I'm sorry, with low, mid, and high potency. There are mm-hmm. second-generation antipsychotic medications. There are some general differences between those. Dosing, depending on how we use the dosing, may accentuate those differences. We have long-acting injections. Um, we have one medication that falls a little bit outside of the model, uh, which is used in treatment of psychosis for patients with uh, uh is it diffusely body dementia? I think it is. So it's uh, there's one medication that's based on serotonin receptors. But other than that, we really haven't been able to break out of the dopamine model. There was a short time when we were looking at uh, MGLU2-3 receptors <laughs> and some molecules that had incredibly promising results uh, in early trials, but when they went to human trials, it just fell apart. It just absolutely fell apart and everything disappeared. Um, we've got a new molecule that's on the horizon. I'm really, really hopeful. I'm hoping this one doesn't disappear like the MGLU. Um, metabotropic glutamate 2 slash 3 receptors. I'll, uh, if the, I think that's the name. Uh, tell me about TAR1. Yeah, so TAR1, um, it's expressed in the brain in the limbic and monoaminergic areas. So these are areas that have to do with mood, attention, memory, fear, and addiction. Um, so these have kind of been studied and it shows that they can modulate um, CNS function. So they're kind of looking at that being a new target potentially. Um, They've also seen that it could have to do, or that gene um, may have a role in the susceptibility of patients to schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Um, So using that as a new target for potential pharmaceuticals is hopeful. Um, they haven't done enough in it yet to know if they can use that as a target with effective results, but it is a new, a new, target. new target. I th- I, I've looked at uh, trials.gov a couple of times, and I, I think they might be recruiting now for phase three trials, which would mean that they have done the dose finding and that there's still enough of a signal that they want to push forward with the very costly phase three, um, I think. That's what I, I remember. That's exciting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so so it's something that maybe we would have results in the next couple of years. These trials actually 
are very, very difficult. I know that uh, there were a lot of sites involved in the Katie trial, mm -hmm. which was a, a naturalistic experiment, and some sites were only able to recruit a couple of people, and that, that was felt to be a, a pretty successful site, which surprised me. Uh, I think these studies are, are more difficult to uh, pull off than they than one might think. And then there's also uh, some issues that have come into play with uh, perhaps medication resistance in these patients. There are patients that are professional patients. Um, randomized controlled trials seem to be getting more difficult for some reason, and seeing that signal seems to be more difficult for whatever reason. In any case, I'm, I'm hopeful that the trace amine, trace amino acid receptor <laughs> dash one has promise. I've looked at some of the information about it a couple of times and uh, I usually need to read it about 70 times for it to stick so we'll see mm -hmm. we'll see how long it takes for me to understand it and hopefully it is something that's worth understanding. I think we've kind of tackled uh, the history of antipsychotic medications it, 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 sort of in a timeline that was very fascinating to me. Right. And I'd be interested in hearing uh, final thoughts before we tie it up. Uh, Christian, what is your take home from this podcast? Um, I guess for me it's that there's a lot of different tools at our disposal and uh, I know it's cool to see all of the evolution of that, but uh, every patient's different, so not forgetting about some of those tools. I like that. Who wants to go next? Um, I could go. I kind of had two takeaways. The first was that sometimes it's really easy when you look back to think, oh, maybe that wasn't a great idea, or oh, how did they get to this? But I think it's really, really important to remember that back then especially, but even now, we don't know the specific biological pathways. We don't even necessarily know the exact symptoms. It's kind of a big broad syndrome so it's quite difficult to come up with suitable medications when you don't know the specifics of the disease itself um, so I think that's definitely one part that will help us in our treatment is just elucidating that pathway um, and the second part is that sometimes I noticed in some of the articles people some people could get very critical and say oh it's not that it hasn't been the saving grace that we think it is but at the end of the day if even one patient has even several days that are better than others, that's a big difference. And that's very important to them, to their families and their loved ones. And I think it has done a lot of good and there's just more to discover. Yeah, that, that triggered a lot of thoughts in my mind. I think those are great takeaways. Y you and Lexi, I think, had discussed this apart from the discussions we had. I'm, I'm guessing you did. Yes. Um, the idea that um, not you can look at 10 or 15 patients who have schizophrenia and they all look different. Yes. Mm -hmm. I think you guys have talked about that outside of conversations right, yeah. we've had. Mm -hmm. And I think, Christian, you might have thought about that too. I think Dave had talked about that with somebody as well. And the idea that we're trying to find medications for something that doesn't always look the same no. and yet seems to be, uh, seems to have an impact, pretty surprising to me too. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's a great takeaway. I, I also... Um, I know that a lot of the articles were very skeptical of antipsychotic medications, and yet the, the, the part that's kind of surprising to me is clearly they did something because there mm -hmm. were thousands and thousands of people that were being warehoused in state hospitals right. who at least had a chance to go home, and some of those patients were at least successful with it, mm -hmm. right? So there's something there. Mm -hmm. and, and to say that there's nothing there doesn't seem accurate, and to say that everything's there does not seem accurate. Right. And I think that's one of the the ways that I really liked the progress of this podcast is the, the way you two tackled it was this evolution mm -hmm. was meaningful because it spoke to the challenges and the, yes. the insufficiencies that we have. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. I like, I like that a lot too. Lexi. Yeah. My take home kind of two. Um, first one, starting with just the discovery and the history of it, it's always fun to see the collaboration between different fields of medicine and how mm -hmm. we really are working on the same team and how that can interplay. It's kind of fun to see. Um, and then the second thing is through the development of medications and treatments and things, um, it's just interesting to see how we discover something, try to use it for one thing, and then it might be completely useless for the thing we intended it for. I mean, we've seen that all over, not just in this case. So I always think it's kind of interesting to see where it came from and why it came from that place. 
and then I like that we can not just throw it in the garbage and move on, but use it for something else and find it might have a benefit um, somewhere. Repurposing. Yes, repurposing. <laughs> I saw that. Uh, I think I saw repurpose used once or twice in some of the articles. I think yeah. it's a, a newer used word, right? Mm-hmm. Great takeaway, and I love the idea of working together. I, I sincerely hope that at some point in the future, when you consult psych to come see one of your post-operative <laughs> uh, patients who is delirious, you say, you know, thank goodness we surgeons were here for you. <laughs> because absent us, you would have never had antipsychotic medications. <laughs> Right? Um, so, so scoreboard. I, I want to hear you say scoreboard to your psychiatry residents at some point. Okay. Guys, what a, uh, I, I don't think I can add to those takeaways. I thoroughly enjoy the history that's presented. I'm getting paged, and it's probably an emergency, so uh, I won't take long. I really enjoyed this podcast. I've been hoping somebody would pick it up for a couple of years. This was the podcast that was planned to be my very first podcast. Wow. And uh, we're about 80 podcasts in now. Brought full circle. (laughs) Finally full circle. So I want to thank the two of you for picking that up and doing such a wonderful job. I think you guys clearly did a tremendous amount of reading. Uh, It was a podcast that went somewhat differently than other podcasts. And I think you guys were very comfortable breaking out of the flow. I'm very, very impressed with uh, your work. And thank you very, very much. On that note, guys, team out. Team out. (laughs) 